Good morning, y'all. I'm Candy Easley, and I'm the executive pastor at Bethany Community Church, which means I get to visit multiple locations. I get to help make sure that we like stay on budget, stay on track with what we're doing. And today, I get to be your teacher because Brad called in sick, and so here we are. So I'm especially grateful uh, for Ballard. You welcomed my husband and son last week for Easter, and this is sort of like Easter take two, our scripture today. And I am so fortunate, or maybe it was the way God had it planned, that in our teaching team this past week, Brad and I were paired up. When we study the scriptures, we take some time before we like delve into what the messages are going to be, and we just study, and then we make our observations. And so Brad and I were like super excited about this passage, and he was leading teaching team, so he got up and started putting stuff on the board. And and then he, he, for a minute, he came down and said, and Kendi, where are you teaching this Sunday? I said, I'm not teaching this Sunday which turned out to be not true. So (laughs) a lot of these ideas that I'm going to share are coming from other preachers. Uh, Silas Sham is preaching up at Northeast, and he has a whole thing going on about um, the exhortation to go take the gospel to all creation. So we're going to touch on that. And Lydia Choi is preaching at North, and she did a whole thing on the stages of grief for the Jewish people. There were these official stages. So we're going to borrow some of that in today's sermon. But we're going to start this way. Last week, there we did the traditional greeting, I think at every location. It goes, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. And you say it with increasing volume. So we're going to say it three times. I'm going to invite you to stand up, and we're going to do Easter again. Your response is, he is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Okay, take a seat, and I'm going to read our scripture today. It comes to us out of the Gospel of Mark. And it's in chapter 16, when I opened up this Bible, um, oh, here's how God provided for me today. I almost said no to Brad for teaching because I had lost my glasses. And I thought, I can't read the scripture and look at the people without my glasses. And then, but I said yes anyway, because God prompts and I, you know, I didn't want to be a chicken. I just thought, I'll just go on off, on off. It'll be fine. I put on my little vest this morning. I put my hand in my pocket. There they were. So God provided Then I couldn't find the right Bible that I could hold and talk from. You know, some of them are really heavy, like I like study Bibles. And at the last minute, my husband said, did you want your Bible? And I was like, oh my gosh, there's my smaller Bible, which is in very small print. So good thing I found the glasses. It turns out that in this Bible, which is the, I think, English Standard Version. I just want to tell you which one it is now that I tell you. Yes, English Standard Version. Thanks to my husband. He reads a different one every year. I just stick with NIV, but here's this one. Um... In chapter 16, the first paragraph is simply called the resurrection. And that's what our passage was last week. When Mary and other women go to the tomb, they're worried about how they're going to get the stone rolled away. They get there and it is rolled away. And they get so excited that they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So that's what we pick up today. Am I doing something goofy? No, we're good. Okay. Should I hold still? That's going to be challenging. I can do it. Okay, so here's what we pick up today. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. And just for my benefit, the scripture is divided exactly how I wanted to divide it. So we're going to go a section at a time while I stand very still. 
uh, hear God's word out of uh, chapter six of, uh, 16 of Mark, and we're going to start in verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he, Jesus, appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. This is the first doubt. They just didn't believe it. So she's saying, I saw this, like this really happened. And they're saying, I don't believe it. Have you ever had the experience? Maybe something really good happened or maybe something really bad happened and you're trying to communicate it and you're not getting a response. When I read this, I do have that perspective that had she been a guy, they might have taken her a little more seriously. Maybe they would have thought about it a little more instead of just refusing out of hand. I see some nods. Could we excuse them because they were grieving? Because it was too astounding to think that there could be life coming out of death. It was beyond, they had no framework. It was beyond their imagining. And yet it had been foretold that this is what would happen. Jesus had said it a number of times. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. It's pointed to throughout all the scriptures that they should have known. But I wonder if there was something about the voice of Mary, about Mary's reputation. Jesus had cast demons out of her, that she didn't seem a reliable source. So why did God have this good news come through an unreliable source? I wonder if that's something that's part of our doubt. And Brad had titled this message, so we're just going to go with it. Something about doubt. You guys have it in your bulletin. The certainty of doubt. So we have a lot of reasons to doubt. Even on Easter, maybe part of us, when we say Christ has risen, he has risen indeed, maybe we believe it, you know, 60%. That, that means we, we have 40% doubt, or maybe you believe it 99% and you just have a tiny bit of doubt. But these disciples in that moment, they simply refused to believe. So what does Jesus do? Let's go to the second little paragraph here. After these, th after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them. Time number two. So Jesus appeared to one woman. Then he appears to two probably men as they were walking along the way. And this is in other... Uh, Gospels, this is the walk to Emmaus. So they're on their way, they're walking along, and a guy comes up to them and he starts talking. And John says he opened up the scriptures to them. Because, and they said to him, have you, have you not heard? He says, why are you so sad? Why are you downcast? And they said, are you the only person who hasn't heard about Jesus of Nazareth? That he was crucified and that he died and we thought he was the Messiah. And Jesus, like, they don't know it's him, but... He's walking along, and he's, he just starts to open up the scriptures to them. And they're listening and maybe thinking, like, could it be? Is, like, maybe we're not getting the whole picture here. And as they get to where they're going, they, they're going to head on into the home. And kind of at the last minute, they say, well, do you, basically, do you want to join us for dinner? 
And he comes in, and he sits down with him at dinner, and he breaks bread. And as he breaks the bread, the scripture says their eyes were opened, and they knew it was Jesus. So they carried this doubt. They're walking along, and and they don't believe it. But it gets transformed. So this is the second uh, type of doubt that we see. I am fascinated that um, the way God chose to kind of increase who he's revealing himself to. When he reveals himself to these two disciples, um, as I mentioned, Lydia studied these different types of grief, these moments, and there's a pre-grief when you you know someone's dying, like it's going to happen. And then there's the first week of deep grief, and then there's 30 days of mourning. And then for the close family of the person who's died, there's an anniversary of the one year of the death. Some of you who've experienced the death of a loved one, maybe in the recent past, you can resonate with that. And very, very strangely, when Brad called me or texted me yesterday, I was down in San Francisco with my 89-year-old dad and the woman he loves who's 94 years old. This can make me cry, and she's dying unto death. And we, I was there with her daughter and her granddaughter, and I went down on Wednesday. She was using a walker. She'd just been diagnosed on Monday with cancer all over her body. By Wednesday, she's totally on a walker. By Thursday, she's in the wheelchair. And we started to call family and say, if you want to come see her when she can still communicate, it feels like this is going really fast. And so on Friday, her great-grandchildren came, and a little puppy came. And it was just this amazing kind of day of celebration of her life. And we, we actually thought, I went to get breakfast for her, and she was sitting at the table in the wheelchair. By the time we came up with breakfast, she was laying on the couch. So we, I thought we were going to lose her that day. But that experience for me uh, was this reminder that the veil between heaven and earth, it just gets so thin at a time of death. And you almost have a sense, in fact, oftentimes a person who's dying like reaches out their arm, and that's how you know you're getting close, that the stages are happening. And, and my friend Lois was doing that. She was like, I want to go over there. But these disciples who are walking along doubted that there was such a thing as life after death. They, they didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't have the end of the story. We can look back and say, how could they have doubted? Like Jesus told them that was going to happen. It was just beyond their imagining. So until they saw him sitting there with their own eyes, they saw him break the bread, and then they go like, oh! this is really happening. There really is a resurrection. So, so they're starting to believe. Um, I have learned, at my, at my seminary, they really encouraged us not to just quote a book, but to really show you, like, there is an actual book. Recommend this book. It's by an author that I'm really enjoying named Kate Baller. She has several other books. And I think Brad has actually spoken about her. Um, and this one she co-wrote with a woman named Jessica Ritchie. And she talks about something that I thought was a really helpful idea. Um, She talks about the idea of mourning a future self. And I kind of think that's what those disciples were doing. They were walking along and thinking, we thought this was it. We we thought he was the Messiah. We thought that the government was going to be overthrown. We thought things were going to change. 
But she says this to you all, or any of us, who are mourning a future self. This is kind of written as 40 devotionals, she, and I'm going to read you just a couple paragraphs. Oh, friend, if you are drawn to read this particular entry today, perhaps you are in that place where grief is what makes the most sense to you right now. Because there is something that will now never be. There is an imagined future, something beautiful and dear to your heart, and it has dissolved before your eyes. What is it that you grieve? Perhaps your grief has a name. She is gone. He will never come back. The funeral is over, but the pain lingers. Perhaps you are grieving an event, an accident, an illness, a messy divorce. Maybe you are mourning a relationship that has come to an end with no possibility for forgiveness or reconciliation. Or perhaps you grieve for a marriage or relationship you still hope for and work for, but one has painted you into a corner. Or is it someone close to you? Maybe you mourn for the relative with mental illness, a child who continues to struggle, or a loved one who will never be able to drive, work, or have the relationships that would make life full. Or maybe you lost an opportunity to do the right thing, to say what mattered. I know that ache. It is a deep sadness that reverberates through our bones. That's where these disciples were. They were grieving the anticipated future that they thought Jesus was bringing. So when he opens up the scriptures to them and he breaks bread, like an overwhelming sense of possibility is coming into their life and maybe it's more than they can hope, they can grab onto, more than they could have hoped for. So we see these disciples walking along. They come to see Jesus when he breaks the bread. And then what happens? There's a third type of doubt, and it's this one. Whoops. And this paragraph in my Bible is called the Great Commission. Afterward, Jesus appeared to the 11 themselves who were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. I just would like to stop there for a minute and, and say that Jesus is essentially endorsing the voices that were ignored. He's saying, I, I sent you a woman. She'd seen me first. I sent you two disciples who were walking, walking along the path, and now you 11 are all gathered and you still don't believe it? Like, here comes you know, I'm, I'm kind of ready for you to put your doubt aside because I'm going to tell you more information now that's going to make the truth irresistible. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. I just want to stop there for a second. He rebukes them for their unbelief and not trusting those that he sent. And then the very next thing he says is, go. He doesn't say, you need to study more. He doesn't say, what, you know, why did you do that to me? He, he just sort of accepts where they are. And I think that applies to us. Yeah, maybe we are, you know, 51% we believe and 49% we doubt. And Jesus says, go. He accepts where we're at. And the... Um, tense of the verb go is like in your going uh, kind of like the road to Emmaus as the, as the disciples were walking along Jesus came and joined them and God is saying in this passage same with us 
as we go, go along and make disciples. Not like study until you have it all and then convince somebody, but more like in your everyday life, in the people that you see, in the things that you do, as you go along, be a disciple and make disciples. And then the passage gets really tricky. And I would like to just not read this section, but it's in here. So I'm going to give it to you. I don't know that I can explain it, but here we go. Go into all the world. Oh, wait, I need to tell you this. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Mark's the only one who says that. He doesn't say to all people. He doesn't say to all Jews. He says to the whole creation. Like, there is something about the gospel message. There's something about the resurrection of Jesus, the power of God to overcome death, that is good news for the entire creation. For everything that God created, we are to be bearers of good news. Now, what would that look like? What would it look like to bear good news to creation? It's, a, it's kind of a big thought that God's in the business not only of redeeming humanity, but of redeeming the whole earth, the whole created order, maybe even beyond earth. That's way beyond my thinking. But Mark makes a point of that. He makes a point of how big this good news is. And to me, it corresponds to the power of Jesus over death. If he could overcome death, he could overcome all kinds of decay, all kinds of the fallen nature of humanity and of our world. So he makes that point, go into all creation. And then he says this, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Okay, that last one, that one I have seen. Laying my hands on sick or other people, like a healing happening. Maybe a, a diagnosis that we thought was like headed a certain direction and suddenly the tumor's gone. And the doctor says, I have no explanation for this. Or a bone that, you know, we thought was broken and you lay hands on the person and they come back to life. It feels like the bone is mended. I had a, a friend who I um, served a church in Spokane, they had a family of three kids and I was a youth pastor and I, I just loved this family and one day the, the mom and the three kids were out and the dad uh, got on his riding, it was really a tractor, not just a mower, and he was on a slope and he, the, the, it rolled him over and he wasn't found for a very long time. We never thought he would walk again. He was in the hospital for months being woven back together. And that time was well before COVID. We got to go in and see him. And we had a rotation of people who went and we couldn't really touch him. We could only touch like the bottom of his feet. Um, and we prayed for him uh, pretty much every day. And when he came to and he recovered, he was able to walk again. And he, was, he had brain power, which was fabulous. Um, he said, I felt like God sent me angels every day. And we just had a sense, like, God confirmed for us that we were meant to be, be there, that team that prayed for him. So sometimes it happens that way. And many times we pray for healing and, and we don't see that result that we're hoping for. But what's going on with the rest of this stuff? I mean, have any of you been out there picking up a serpent to see what happens? No. And, and like, why is it in here? So 
Pastor Silas up at Northeast had some thoughts. He says this. First of all, casting out demons in Christ's name. He brings up this idea of do our lives perpetuate chaos and disintegration? Or are we a people who proclaim wholeness? Who proclaim the goodness of God, the power of God over any other power? That's casting out a demon. Casting out an idol. Living as people who don't give in to the the voice of Satan beckoning us. Will your life be this kind of life? They will speak in new tongues. Absolutely. There is the Holy Spirit kind of tongue. There's also at the Tower of Babel the ability to be heard when different tongues are being spoken. So Silas brings out this question of, will your voice be a voice that brings unity? Will your voice be really the voice of God to other people? Can you speak words of love and of truth? And if you have the gift of tongues, have at it. May you have an interpreter. May you be able to encourage the church. I loved John's. You guys are really good at announcements here at Ballard. Every time I come, I hear the announcements. Like, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds really fun. That sounds really good. It's, it's a, it kind of a gift of encouragement that I would pray maybe this whole church has that gift. Maybe Ballard is a place of encouragement. Maybe you get to infiltrate the community of Ballard to be a people of encouragement. How do we use our voice? And then they'll pick up serpents with their hands. So tricky. The question here, um, it could be a reference back to Moses because God says, throw your staff down and it becomes a serpent. And then God says, pick it up by the tail, which all the magicians of the day, sorcerers, would pick up a snake like by its head so that you're holding its, he's less likely to be able to bite or send its venom. But if you pick it up by the tail, you're really kind of putting yourself at risk. But when Moses picked, he did what God asked and he picked a serpent up and it returned to be a staff. So is there this idea of a supernatural power? Is it the idea also of the snake at the serpent being the one who deceived Eve. Is it to say like, hey, get hold of that. You know, you, you have power over Satan. Don't give in. Um, and then they'll drink deadly poison. Do not try this at home, please. I, you know, the question that Silas brings to us is, what's, what about our consumption? You know, what, what kind of consumption are we taking in? And are we being a people who kind of chooses deadly poison? Are we being a people who choose um, to see what God wants to do through what we take in, in our mind, in our mouth, in our heart? Okay, so super tricky part. And if you want to do some more study on that, I'm sure Brad would be really glad to do that with you. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God, and this is the part I love, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. They did what they were told. They didn't wait around and say like, hey, we didn't understand that part about the serpents. They, they, they went out. They said like, okay, Jesus. And that's what I was reminded of when Brad called me and said, like, hey, you know, I, I need help. And, and I thought of this passage that's in First Peter that says, 
always be prepared to give an account for your faith. So I would invite us as a church into that. Are we prepared not just to give an account like what do you believe, but if you find yourself in a situation where someone you know has a relative on their their deathbed, are you the person who says, you know what I believe? I believe there's life after death. Are you a person who knows somebody who's grieving a future self? You know what I believe? I believe God works even in the midst of that. I believe God can redeem even those troubling circumstances. And you have probably heard me say, my husband and I went through extensive infertility. I still say we're 12 years behind everybody else. We ended up adopting two kids, and they were the kids God had in mind for us. It wasn't the way I wanted to become a mom, but God totally redeemed that situation. And I've seen it time and again. Don't ever say that to someone, like, oh, God will make good out of this. It hurts. And we're called to walk with someone when it hurts, but also to be a people of hope who have faith enough to share with that one who's grieving, that one who's experiencing loss, and love enough to walk with them so that they might have the kind of hope that we carry into the world. The other book that I want to recommend to you is this called Seeking God's Face, Praying with the Bible Through the Year. And not every day, but most days, I try to start my day thinking about God and opening up this book. And this book has reminded me this time that the Easter season is actually 50 days from Easter to Pentecost. Penta is 50, five, Pentecost, 50 days after Easter. And just to come back to why Brad titled this The Certainty of Doubt, here's what my book says. Easter is full of joy and the laughter of love. The grave is empty, love has won, Christ is risen. Give yourself over to the experience of that joy. Take in the absolute wonder of God's purposeful plan of salvation. Yet since resurrection was without precedent, Easter can also be a time of doubt. And so in this season, we share with Thomas, who got that reputation of doubting Thomas because he wanted to touch Jesus and be sure it was true. We share with Thomas and others the confusion and disbelief about the resurrection. Yet even in doubt or betrayal, Christ, our good shepherd, restores, guides, and leads us. So friends, believe this good news of the gospel. Christ is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you that you have invited us to go and that you have given us power and authority and love. God, I pray that you would give us a hope that does not disappoint, that we would know that there is a hope in Jesus that is beyond what we could have ever imagined. So Lord God, bless your people this week, wherever they go, whatever they go at at work, at home, whatever they carry in their heart, may they know uh, that you are with them and that you are a God of love and of hope beyond imagining. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.